Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we look into a new survey that suggests there is a strong relationship between a person's political perspectives and their views on free speech in this country. We head to Sri Lanka, where public outrage over a lack of basic goods and skyrocketing prices has seen mass protests that have now led the president to flee. What's next for what was one of the region's richest countries? Are big Canadian grocery store chains profiting off of inflation? We speak to a Toronto Star reporter who's taken a good look at what's going on and drawn some interesting conclusions. But first, the Bank of Canada raises its key interest rate target by a full percentage point to 2.5%, the biggest jump since 1998. Bank Governor Tiff Macklin says the size of the rate hike in a single meeting reflects very unusual economic circumstances, with inflation at its highest level in nearly 40 years. We look at the rationale behind the move, what impact it will have, and is the bank telegraphing more rate increases to come? Share some good news with me today, uh, because it's been a bit of a tough day if you have, well, if you borrowed money. (laughs) There was nothing polite at all today about the Bank of Canada's interest rate hike, so aggressive that it caught most industry experts off guard. Here's what's happened. They've raised the key interest rate target by a full percentage point to 2.5%, the biggest jump since 1998. Many had expected a 0.75 increase. Uh, The Bank of uh, Canada Governor Tiff Macklem says the size of the rate hike in a single meeting reflects the very unusual economic circumstance we find ourselves in with inflation at its highest level in nearly four decades. It's the fourth consecutive rate increase since March. And of course, the biggest. Macklem says if high inflation becomes entrenched, it will be more painful for the economy and for Canadians to get it back down. And doing it this way means the bank hopes to prevent high inflation from becoming entrenched and even more pain in the future. Inflation is too high and more people are getting more worried that high inflation is here to stay. We cannot let that happen. Restoring price stability, low, stable and predictable inflation is paramount. By front-loading interest rate increases now, we're trying to avoid the need for even higher interest rates down the road. Front-loading tightening cycles tend to be followed by softer landings. Tiff Macklem there. Well, the impact of the hike was felt immediately. Lenders today, major ones announcing the prime lending rates would increase by one full percentage point to 4.7% on Thursday, which will, of course, increase the cost of variable rate mortgages, home equity lines of credit, and so on. Um, the Prime Minister spoke about this today. Obviously, inflation is never, and high interest rates are never politically popular. Uh, he was in Kingston today. Here's what he has to say. He said it was a global issue. Whether it be disruption in supply chains, the war in Ukraine and the challenges around energy from Russia, whether it be the pressures of climate change, whether it be disrupted supply chains, these are things that we are working hard with our partners around the world to counter, to prevent downturns, So was it really all about a global issue? Was it not a bit about rates were too low for too long? People borrowed too much money. There was too much money out there. Well, the bank is also forecasting inflation will remain at 8% over the next few months. That's the bad news, but begin to decline toward the end of the year and reach their target rate of 2% by the end of 2024. Still a ways to go yet. Well, joining me now with more on today's rate hike and what it means for all of us is Laura Lau. She's Chief Investment Officer at Brompton Funds in Toronto. Thank you for your time. Great to be here, Ben. So uh, I, I'm not an economist. I'm certainly not a chief financial investment officer, but I was surprised this morning. What was your reaction? 
we were surprised as well. We expected 75 basis points. And, you know, not too long ago, a couple months ago, we expected only 50 basis points. So 1% is basically the Bank of Canada saying inflation's out of control. We got to get in front of this. So let's do why, you know, do dribs and drabs. Let's just get it all done. So 1% is a big jump. What kind of impact does that have? I mean, when you see that big of a jump, the biggest since 1998, uh, what sort of impact does it have right away? Well, right away, those of you who have variable rate mortgages, you're going to be paying 1% more. That's a big jump. So I would expect the housing market to start cooling down even more. And then again, any other big ticket items such as buying cars, that will also increase uh, the, the price of financing. So, what, Lorna, what is behind this? I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, but what is the rationale with driving up interest rates so quickly? Because clearly it causes pain for everyone out there because we everyone borrows, right? Uh, so what is the rationale with the Bank of Canada for driving up rates so fast today and so much? I think the number one thing is inflation. Number two is inflation. Number three is inflation. So we also had uh, the United States uh, just report their inflation number And it was also higher than expected, 9.1. So I think they're looking that uh, basically Canada is overheated. The labor markets are very tight and inflation's high, especially for gas, food and shelter. And one big thing we've seen that's uh, different is in the U.S. They always looked at core inflation, which doesn't include gas, food and, and shelter. Well, people need to live somewhere. They need to go somewhere and they need to eat. So, and that's what everybody's looking at is the big headline numbers. When unions negotiate wages, they look at the big headline number. So what they're trying to do is stop wage inflation in its tracks, because that's, I think, one of the biggest dangers. Yeah, you were mentioning the U.S. numbers out today. Consumer prices up 9.1% compared to a year ago, which is, which is just massive. Um, will this work? I think that central banks or actually want to engineer a recession. And I think that's what's going to happen. You see them all saying, yes, GDP growth is going to come down, but they still have positive economic growth numbers. I think this will engineer a recession. And with that, uh, we'll have wage pressure come down. We'll have commodity pressure, such as gasoline and food inflation come down. So it will work, but it's just how painful will it be? It sounds painful. <laughs> I mean, for the time being, you know, interest rates are high, inflation is still high, and uh, we may enter something of an economic slowdown. It sounds like it, uh, it's going to be quite a bit of short-term pain uh, for long-term improvement. Yes, I agree. We're definitely going to have some uh, short-term pain. Uh, and I think what the central banks are banking on is the fact that, yes, inflation um, we need inflation to come down. The wage markets are strong. And I'd say this time around, because it's been so hard to hire people, I think we're going to have fewer layoffs than we would in previous slowdowns. Uh, so that's one thing I think they're banking on. And they're also banking on the fact that we have a lot of savings. So I think what they're hoping is, even though they do jack up rates, that the recession or slowdown will not be as bad as previous um, economic recessions. I know the Bank of Canada doesn't have a whole lot of tools in its toolbox when it comes to fighting inflation, but do you get the sense they're trying to play catch up here? That's why we're seeing such a big jump? 
Definitely. I think all central banks around the world did not think inflation would be this high for this long. So they're all behind the eight ball. And to fix it, they have to increase rates more than they normally would have and faster. Um, do we expect more? Uh, obviously, the Bank of Canada usually gives some guidance as to where they're headed uh, for the rest of the year in, on these days where they announce these rate hikes. Uh, where do we see this going in the next uh, in the next six months? So we definitely see more rate hikes coming. So the market is expecting another 75 basis points or 0.75% in September and um, also another um, 0.25% in October. So we we do expect um, in total another 1% by year end. Uh, to put this in historical perspective, though, again, even with that, interest rates are still relatively low, right? I mean, it, it, before everyone loses their, you know, sort of tears their hair out, this is going to be difficult for people who have borrowed. Uh, but again, uh, historical, historically, interest rates are still relatively low. Yes, they're relatively low. Uh, but generations, I'd say, you know, past 40, 50 years, uh, not a lot of people have seen this kind of inflation or this kind of interest rates. I remember my first mortgage was definitely higher than this. And most of your older um, audience remember high interest rates. So in relation is better. But I would also say this time around, the debt loads are much higher. A lot people have borrowed a lot more for their homes. So they will feel this pain. I'm speaking with Laura Lau this half hour. She's Chief Investment Officer at Brompton Funds in Toronto. We're talking about the Bank of Canada's uh, decision today. We knew a interest rate hike was coming. Most had predicted about 75 basis points, uh, 0.75%. Instead, uh, it was a 1% increase, 100 basis points announced today. We're talking about what the impact of that will be, uh, what the reasoning behind it is. Uh, and when we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about, again, where are we headed? And uh, is it enough? I mean, there are certainly a lot of other factors out there that are driving up inflation. What happens if it doesn't work? That's next. Our guest is Laura Lau. She's Chief Investment Officer at Brompton Funds. We're talking about the Bank of Canada's uh, surprise to many, at least not the interest rate hike that we saw today. But the size of the interest rate hike, it was 1%. A lot of been expecting 0.75. Um, and, and just what the impact of that is as, as the Bank of Canada tries to tame inflation that seems at this point somewhat untamable, at least in the short term. Um, you've talked in the past, Laura, just about, about the other factors involved here. For instance, energy prices are a big, huge factor here. The government has very little control over that. What happens if interest rates continue to rise, but inflation doesn't come down? We're actually starting to expect um, peak inflation Q3, Q4 of this year. And part of the reason why is about half of the inflation so far has been in terms of gasoline, food, and other commodities. And uh, all those are actually starting to come down. Gasoline prices are coming down. Uh, f- uh, a lot of the f- uh, food and commodity inflation, like say things like copper, aluminum, those prices have come down. So that will help. But what we do does happen with energy is it does take a little while to flow through the system. Uh, so, for instance, goods are shipped and then they have a cert- they charge you more for uh, fuel costs, and then you get it delivered over three to six months. So, it does take a while for inflation to move through the system. And what I found very interesting is um, the inflation expectations this year in April. Uh, they said 2022. They expected 5.3% inflation. Now they expect 72 
But what's more telling is next year. Next year, they thought it would be 2.8% inflation. They expect next year to be 4.6. And that's still outside of what they target. So the Bank of Canada is getting more realistic and realizing that inflation will be higher for longer. And I, and I gather they are also telegraphing to some extent that uh, that they will continue at least aggressively to try to push it back down to that target of two two and a half percent. So does that mean more interest rate hikes into the new year as well? Do you think uh, there possibly could be more into the new year? So um, right now the market. Um, Usually what we do is we like to look at the market to see what they're forecasting, uh, and that forecast isn't in the market. But we do see um, on the American side that they are still forecasting more rate hikes, and Canada often does follow um, what the U.S. does. This time around, it's actually been quite interesting where Canada actually has been faster ahead on the curve than the United States. But in the U.S., uh, they do forecast that uh, probably February, uh, February, the hike, the interest rates will peak and start coming down. So there may be some relief on the horizon here. Uh, in the meantime, though, what do you, what do you tell Canadians who are trying to make sense of all this? Because all we see is these numbers, and you know, a lot of people don't pay very close attention to this, and all of a sudden, up they go. Well, I would say that you know, I've been talking to some people at work, and a lot of people have variable rate mortgages, and they're wondering, should I lock in or not? So I think a lot of people have to decide. Um, to me, it's really, can you sleep at night? That, that's the number one thing. Can you sleep at night with higher rates or not? And if you can't, you may want to consider uh, locking in. But I do think that um, this will slow down the economy. And with that, I do think that um, interest rates will at some point come down again, especially uh, what we've seen as the Bank of Canada and, you know, has been basically expanding uh, with also quantitative easing. So now with quantitative tightening, that also effectively is probably another 0.25 to 0.5% hike. In the uh, in, in interest rates, you mean? Yes, in, interest, in, in terms of financial conditions, we're tightening even more. So it acts, again, uh, almost like a 025 to 0.5% hike. So in cooling down the economy, which is essentially what was going on, you said earlier, they're trying, they're essentially moving us into recession. What does that mean for the average Canadian then? Um, you know, it, and, and should we trust the Bank of Canada and all this? Because clearly we know when we were listening to their forecast a year and a year and a half ago, uh, they all predicted that this would be trans, you know, sort of a transition, but clearly it's stuck around a lot longer than anyone thought. So what I think happens is people don't realize that just the central banks communicating, they try to calm things down. So I think that's what they're doing when they said inflation's transient. They're trying to calm things down and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. What I mean by that is, oh, it's high, inflation is high. So what you have happened is, for instance, labor unions will go and say, I can't, I'm not going to accept two, three percent, you know, wage increases. I went higher to make up for all that inflation. So they're going to negotiate much higher rates. And that again feeds into inflation. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that's why they've been so abrupt in increasing these interest rates. They don't want all these wage expectations to go up and people, you know, accepting inflation because, you know, you go to the grocery store, oh, 
it, I paid a dollar yes, yesterday, now it's a dollar ten. They get used to it. Uh, so that's what they want to do. They want to nip in the bud as soon as they can. So there, there is a little bit of panicking now. There's no doubt about that. Laura Lau, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Well, a new survey suggests, and this is not a huge surprise, that there's a strong relationship between a person's political perspective and their views on free speech in this country. Respondents who lean right were more likely to believe there should be no limits on speech, including the right to express hateful and offensive opinions. Now, this wasn't a great number of people, but there was some. Uh, The survey uh, was done by the Canadian Hub for Applied and Social Research at the University of Saskatchewan and asked about a 1,000 people about their political leanings and their views on free speech. Now, overall, uh, 8 in 10, or nearly 86, said they believe that uh, they have or somewhat have freedom of speech in this country. Most respondents also said they believe governments and corporations like Twitter and Meta, formerly known as Facebook, should intervene to limit the spread of misinformation and hate speech. Well, to figure out what this was all about, what was learned, and what it could uh, indicate is Jason DeSano. He's the director of the Canadian Hub for Applied and Social Research at the University of Saskatchewan. Thank you for your time tonight. My pleasure, Ben. This is an interesting survey. Uh, What did you set out to find? Yeah, so really the impetus behind this survey, and we, we survey Canadians on a variety of different issues uh, fairly regularly. Um, for this particular survey, we're really interested in the uh, extent to which the term freedom and freedom of speech have been coming up in the Conservative Party of Canada leadership campaign. And we thought it would be particularly interesting at this point in time to find out the extent to which Canadians truly think they're free and by extension have freedom of speech. Um, the main driving factor behind uh, this particular survey. So you really, you set out to find, I guess, freedom of speech is where you landed, right? Which is an interesting one because so much of our perceptions of freedom of speech kind of blend into what, you know, the First Amendment in the U.S. and so forth. So what did you wind up finding out? Do people think we have freedom of speech in, in the country right now? Uh, generally, yes. So most Canadians, 86% of those uh, who are surveyed indicated that they do believe Canadians have freedom of speech. Um, so it's a very small minority who believe that we don't. Um, most of those who are surveyed, so at least 50%, if not more, also feel that government or private corporations have uh, a role to play in limiting the spread of misinformation or hate speech in Canada. So um, the role of government might be fairly obvious, but when we're talking about private corporations, for example, that might refer to, say, a social media company like Facebook and Twitter uh, clamping down on hate speech or misinformation on their various platforms. Um, one of the other questions that we we asked that was, that was also interesting was um, we asked whether uh, Canadians agree with Canada's approach that have some limits on freedom of speech um, versus the U.S. approach uh, that that basically the U.S. First Amendment, which doesn't have any limits on free speech. And eight out of 10 Canadians, so about 80 percent of those surveyed um, feel that Canada's approach is the, the best approach or the more appropriate approach. So so in, in, in broad strokes, I guess most of us feel like we're pretty much free to say what we want within limitations that we agree with, which is which is interesting. You did find some exceptions and they were regional. Yeah, so there were there were a number. Of, so the data gets particularly interesting when we start actually looking at it from one's political perspective and also one's region of residence in the country. And there's actually a very strong relationship between sort of political leanings and region of residence in the country. So we tend to see these sort of results um, sort of 
sort of moving with one another, I guess you could say. So, for example, in terms of whether people feel that uh, or Canadians feel that we have freedom of speech, uh, prairie residents, so those who live in, in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, were more likely than any other region of the country to believe that um, we have very little or no freedom of speech. So 20% of those in the Prairie Provinces believe Canadians have very little or no freedom of speech. So it's about one in five compared to just 8% of those who live in Quebec, which actually was the lowest on that particular metric. Um, in terms of, terms of um, fairly significant regional differences, we also found that um, 22%, so almost a quarter of those surveyed on the prairies believe there should be no limits on freedom of speech. So a quarter of those surveyed actually believe, you know, they're sort of more in support of the U.S. approach versus the Canadian approach, with the lowest being um, 4.5% in, in, in the Atlantic provinces. So that's a very, very significant difference between those two groups. Yeah, no, it certainly is. What do you think is behind that? I mean, I would imagine if, if I would guess, uh, and I'm not an expert, but if I were to guess, I would say it's all about what you perceive freedom of speech to mean and where you feel like it's being taken away. So I know that there's a lot of uh, talk these days of sort of political correctness and so on, and, and cancel culture is, is big in some in some forums and so on. If that's your approach to freedom of speech, then perhaps you do think uh, that a more open uh, a more open system such as the one in the U.S. would make sense. If you don't think that. If you don't think that's what you're talking about, if you think that you're talking about hate speech and so forth, then I imagine your perception of what the limitations are would be different. Yeah, again, I think politics, well, I mean, we see it in the data here, but but politics and, and sort of political leaning is definitely one of the main driving factors here of uh, people's views and opinions on, on freedom of speech and the extent to which they folks feel we have it and the extent to which, you know, they feel sort of our, our approach is appropriate or the U.S. is more appropriate. Um, that's really one of the, the main driving factors that we're seeing in these data. There's, there's fairly significant differences because one of the questions we asked on this survey was whether folks consider themselves um, sort of left-leaning or right-leaning. And on every one of the questions that we asked in this particular survey, we found um, a pretty stark difference between those who consider themselves right-leaning versus left-leaning um, on all on all the measures. And in some cases, the results were, were quite quite varied and quite significant. It does, in some senses, suggest that there are some silos going on when it comes to the information we receive in the first place, because people are clearly reading about things or absorbing information that suggests that uh, that freedom of speech is under threat in this country, whereas others are are not may think that you know blanket freedom of speech is a threat in itself, depending on what kind of uh, what kind of media, social media you're consuming. Yeah, I mean, you know, if there's one thing that that occurred during the pandemic is people increasingly turn to social media as a means of, of both consuming and sharing information. And social media has certainly played uh, and is seemingly playing an increasingly large role in, in how people are, are both consuming and sharing information. And, and that's certainly um, in, in a lot of the work that we do and a lot of the research that we do, um, we see a lot of the effect that social media is having, um, whether good, bad, or somewhere in between. Any lessons in a nutshell, any lessons emerging from this in terms of just how, you know, what our perceptions are of where free speech can go, where the boundaries are and what we'd like to see uh, both government and I guess in the case of private corporations, it would still have to be government that would uh, that would that would crack down on, on, on or at least impose some sort of limitations on misinformation. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think. So this is really interesting. And, and again, part of the reason why we asked these questions were they were just very topical and very timely. Um, the reality is we didn't hear people talking about freedom and freedom of speech 
too much 10, 15 years ago. Um, but it's become, uh, you know, very much uh, a topic of conversation as of late. I mean, you know, whether we're going to be still talking about this in another year or two or three or five or 10, I don't know. Um, but I definitely think we're seeing some trends in the data. And this is something that we might be interested as a unit and following up on in, in the future if, you know, if, if freedom of speech continues to be sort of a, a topic of, of conversation and interest in something that people are particularly uh, passionate about one way or another. Did you get any perception out of this, out of just exactly what, when, when you say the word freedom, did you get any idea of what people are, are taking that to mean? Because again, the old adage always is, you know, your freedom to swing your arm ends when it hits my face, right? That's the, the sort of idea of freedom. But what did you make of what people were, uh, sort of how, in the way they were responding to what their interpretation of the question was? Yeah, so we didn't we didn't sort of get into too much beyond asking questions specific to freedom of speech. But I mean, freedom of speech covers a lot of a lot of different areas, right, and a lot of different things. And so um, during the course of the survey, we got a, a pretty good flavor of what you know people were thinking about when we're just talking about the, the concept of freedom in general and, and freedom of speech. But uh, people's views on sort of freedom in general and freedom of speech tend to be to tend to be very much in alignment with one another. You did find some interesting stuff too when it came to talking about your political beliefs in public as well, which is always an interesting one because, um, you know, just how comfortable, especially emerging from this pandemic time, uh, how comfortable are people talking about their political beliefs in public and how does it differ between regions and genders and so on? Yeah, so um, three quarters, so three out of four of those who were surveyed indicated they feel comfortable expressing their political opinions in public. And uh, the remaining about 25% or shortly, uh, slightly, slightly fewer feel uh, uncomfortable sharing their their views or sort of their political views uh, in in public. There weren't any statistically significant differences, actually, uh, for that particular question that were that were nothing that jumped out at us is particularly noteworthy that that was worth sort of pointing out. So it didn't track with some of the other stuff that you were looking at as well. Not necessarily. No. Um, where do you go from here? I mean, this again, you, you brought it, you said it might be worth digging into a little bit more. Where would you like to find out more from what you've already learned? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be, I think it's going to depend on where the conversation goes. I mean, you know, we're, we're always following the media in terms of what, what the hot, hot uh, button topics of the story that uh, or stories of the day are. And, um, you know, if, if people are still talking about sort of freedom and freedom of speech in another year time, it might be interesting to see if, um, if, if there's any shifts in public views and opinions, particularly once the um, Conservative Party of Canada leadership campaign is settled to see if that has any impact on people's views and opinions um, related to these, these particular questions around freedom of speech. Yeah, it's certainly interesting that 80% of Canadians do don't believe or at least believe the Canadian uh, approach is correct and don't believe the First Amendment approach uh, would be the right one. Because again, I, I get the impression there always is a bit of a bleeding of those two ideas in this country, because we all live so close to the border that sometimes freedom of speech, uh, we, we often look south to see what that could mean. Yeah, and I think in some cases, too, there's also a bit of a misunderstanding of, of what our rights are as Canadians that are protected under the charts and Charter of Rights and Freedoms versus what U.S., what, what rights they have in the U.S. under the U.S. Constitution, which are, are two vastly different things. Jason DeSanto, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. My pleasure. Well, let's head to Sri Lanka uh, now. The president has fled the country, plunging uh, a country already reeling from economic chaos into more political turmoil. Protesters have been demanding a change in leadership. 
they trained their ire Wednesday on the prime minister and stormed his office. Uh, President Gotabaya Rajapaksa and his wife left aboard an Air Force plane bound for the Maldives. It's not clear where he is now. And he made his prime minister the acting president in his absence. That appeared to only further anger people in the island nation. Sri Lanka has been gripped for months by an economic disaster that has triggered severe shortages of food and fuel. Air gas leveled against protesters enraged by the country's devastating economic crisis. Fuel and food shortages are now commonplace. The protesters defy it. Sri Lanka's president had seen enough. He and his family hopped onto a military plane and flew off to the Maldives. His prime minister is now in the hot seat. Protesters have breached the presidential and prime ministerial compounds as well as the state broadcaster. Tom Rivers, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. And here's the other issue. Now, of course, Sri Lanka has a unique set of circumstances to some extent, uh, uniquely badly managed over the past while. But these sorts of anger, this sort of anger about rising prices, about affordability, about other issues around what we're seeing worldwide with supply chains and inflation and so on is not unique to Sri Lanka. Uh, many lesser developed countries have been hit hard by those rising prices and higher boring costs and so on as um, you know, the global economic recovery and the war in Ukraine continue and people are turning those frustrations against their rulers. So with more on what's happening in Sri Lanka, what the broader picture is, I'm joined from London uh, by Alan Keenan. He's a senior consultant with the International Crisis Group who focuses specifically on Sri Lanka. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. So for listeners who may not know how we got here, uh, just how much have things deteriorated in Sri Lanka in, in, in recent years? It sounds like it's really gone to, uh, in, into a complete nosedive economically, at least. Yeah, it has. Um, I mean, it was always, I think, skating on thin ice um, for years, living off debt and um, just kind of scraping by, but looking healthy because its growth figures were high and its um its standard of living was was quite high it was it was an upper middle income country um before it it started crashing but a series of um really bad decisions by the uh by the president who seems possibly on the verge of resigning um Gotabia Rajapaksa who's just fled the country after massive protests stormed his office and his residence he took a series of of quite um disastrous decisions beginning with massive tax cuts then COVID hit, which wiped out the tourism industry. Uh, then he um, uh, forced an organic farming policy overnight in order to save money, which in fact crashed the agricultural sector and has led to food shortages, as well as costing a lot more money than they saved in the end. Um, and all of this has, uh, as their their ability to, um, to uh, buy the imported goods that they need to survive, the especially fuel, but also food and medicine has dwindled as their foreign currency reserves dwindle. So by early, early this year, early 2022, things were um, really coming to a head. And for the previous year, many economists, basically all objective economists and analysts were urging the government to go to the IMF for a bailout before things got to the point of absolute emergency. But unfortunately, um, out of pride and out of nationalism and out of um, boneheaded economic thinking, um, the, the government thought it could sort of um, scrape by with a, a little bit of help here and a little bit of help from some other country. But unfortunately, that ran out in April when they officially um, defaulted on their debt. But by this point, they literally were out of money. So the big problem now for average Sri Lankans is there's no 
fuel uh, for their cars. There's no cooking gas to cook. Uh, there's um, either shortages of food or incredibly high priced food. Um, there's lack of medicines. And the whole country is ground to a halt because there's no there's no fuel for the cars and the buses and the tuk-tuks and the, and the motorcycles. People are standing in queues overnight, sometimes multiple nights. It's really reached absurd and um, really uh, scary proportions. So this has then generated a, quite a massive protest movement, which has waxed and waned, but waxed considerably last weekend when, they, when crowds of certainly hundreds of thousands, possibly as many as a million people gathered in Colombo and um, demanding the resignation of Kotabi Rajapaksa and his prime minister, Ranil Vikramasinghe, and succeeded in pushing out Gotabia, although neither Gotabia, the president, nor uh, Ranil, the um, prime minister, have yet formally resigned. We saw the images, of course, of people swimming in his pool and watching news of their own protests on his televisions. Um, what, what prompted the sudden surge? What prompted them to be able, finally, to, uh, to push the government out? It seemed like they were well entrenched for a long time. Well, they, um, as I said, it came in waves. So there was a big wave and, you know, the March saw sort of small little neighborhood protests, people banging pots and pans, holding signs saying, go to go home, uh, go to being short for Kotabia, the president. Um, and uh, that sort of escalated up until the very end of the month where there was a, a kind of a, 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 there was a big protest outside his private residence, which was repressed violently by the military. Then that escalated the situation um, and led to an encampment um, being set up uh, called the Gotokogama or Gotogo um, village uh, just outside his office in uh, his main office in Colombo. That then um, sort of went along for through April and into May when um, there was another upsurge uh, which forced out the prime minister. Uh, so if us, the, the Rajapaksa, it's not just been Gotabia Rajapaksa running Sri Lanka, it's been his whole family. So his brother before him, Mahinda, was president for 10 years and then was made prime minister when Gotabia became president in 2019. But there are also brothers Chamal and Basil and nephew Namal, son of Mahinda. So there was a whole uh, family dynasty, as well as lots of other cousins not, I've not named, who were running the country for most of the last 20 years. Um, and the anger was directed at all of them. And most of them were forced out by the middle of May, but Gotabia had hung on. And he then invited Ranil Vikramasinghe to become his president, uh, I mean, his prime minister. Ranil had been prime minister many times before, was apparently from the opposition, but has lo long had a, a, a close relationship with the Rajapaksas across the political divide and was very happy to come into power and try to rescue the economy, but also, I think, to try to rescue the Rajapaksas. And this undercut sort of um, weakened the energies of the protest movement in May and into June. But then as the, as the crisis, as the hardship grew, grew greater and greater and the fuel ran out and the lines got longer and the medicine ran out and people couldn't afford to eat, the anger just rose. And so there was a call for a final mobilization on the 9th, Saturday, the 9th of July, which met with this massive response of, you know, as I said, certainly hundreds of thousands of people traveled from all across the country, you know, average people hopping on buses, uh, commandeering trains, getting rides from friends, walking long distances. So it was just, I think, sheer numbers and sheer enthusiasm and sheer anger uh, uh, that um, finally the crowds were big enough to, to physically storm through and make the place ungovernable. And that's what I think finally got Gotabia to promise to resign. But as I said, again, he has not resigned. He's left the country uh, 
He's wandering around somewhere. He went to the Maldives and is reportedly on his way to Singapore. Um, and his, he's then designated Ranil Vikramasinghe as the acting president. Um, and this arrangement could go on for quite a while. In, in fact, it could go on indefinitely, although most expect that Gotabia will, in fact, resign once he has found a safe haven. So as long as he is president, he is protected by head of state immunity from criminal prosecution. Uh, and he is accused of a multiple series of crimes, of war crimes, of murders, of, assa- of abductions, of corruption. So um, whether he's guilty or not, he's, he wants to protect himself. And so he's looking for somewhere that will give him asylum and will allow him to be protected against prosecution before he finally resigns. In the meantime, though, I gather there's a state of emergency in place. Um, are things looking looking bleak in the next little while? It seems like at least the government's trying to clamp back down on these protests uh, while they try to sort out the governance. Yeah, well, that's the... Um... I think I think there's a, that's the new dynamic. The, the two new things that have changed today have um, been Ranil taking up the post, not just of prime minister, but also acting president. Um, and then immediately declaring a state of emergency. In fact, he tried to declare the state of emergency before he was acting president, which he didn't have the power to do. And then later did it again when he was when he was acting president. So he was very eager to impose a state of emergency. He has called the protesters fascists, which is a gross exaggeration. Uh, while there has been some perhaps overly enthusiastic um, uh, statements and um, uh, and you know from the protesters, they've been overwhelmingly peaceful, well behaved, playful, um, re- quite creative, and actually I think overall have been a remarkably positive um, achievement or a factor in Sri Lankan politics the last few months. So um, he's clearly very angry at the fact that his house was burned down on on Saturday, uh, the 9th of July presumably by some protesters, although the evidence is not conclusive about who did it. Um, But um, he's clearly angry about that and wants to um, clamp down. The military, I think, seems caught a little bit. They, um, some of them might well like to um, move in a more repressive um, direction. But from what I'm hearing, they're reluctant to do so, so long as um, the entire political establishment is not behind them. So um, until... um, until they're confident that they could um, repress the um, the protests more violently without um, paying a price, I think there will be restrained. And I think one of the key key, um, messages that needs to come from the UN and from influential governments like the US and Canada and um, a whole range of other EU and India and Japan, to name a few, uh, is that the military must not um, use live ammunition to to um, control the crowds? That they must keep keep the restraint that they've had the last few months, um, because the protesters are angry, but they are relatively st- restrained. But if if they start dying in the streets due to military firing, um, then all you know all holds are are off, or whatever the uh, whatever the right expression is. We, yeah. we would be heading in in quite a dangerous direction then. Already a very volatile situation. I'm speaking with Alan Keenan. He's a senior consultant with the International Crisis Group. His focus is on Sri Lanka. We're talking about the situation right now in Sri Lanka. The president has fled 
uh, the country. He was meant to resign. He has not yet resigned. Uh, and that comes after a, a long series of protests, as Alan said, that waxed and waned, but certainly waxed over the last few days, resulting in uh, the storming, essentially, or the takeover of the presidential palace by protesters. Again, all of this due to just an absolute collapse in the Sri Lankan economy, the lack of availability of uh, certainly no foreign reserves, so the lack of all imports that they rely on, such as fuel and uh, and medicine, as well as foodstuffs and other things, and just the sheer anger that that provoked against uh, a long-standing family regime, the Rajapaksa family in uh, in Sri Lanka. When we come back, what's next, and what could this mean for other countries around the world, for leaders there who are also dealing with populations that are growing angrier over the cost of living? We'll get to that after this. My guest this half hour is Alan Keenan. He's a senior consultant with the International Crisis Group who focuses on Sri Lanka. He's speaking to us tonight from London. So none of this uh, seems to solve the main problem, of course, which is the lack of everything. Uh, how does that get sorted out while all this continues to be as chaotic as it is? Yeah, well, I think um, no one knows, to be honest. Uh, so the best case scenario is that uh, Ranil ends up uh, resigning as as acting president and prime minister. Uh, the speaker takes over, or um, someone else takes over as the as the as the acting interim uh, president, and then Parliament chooses another uh, a president to um, sit out the to take over the remainder of Kotabia's term and to choose and form a new government. Um, hopefully, that that new government will. Uh, be able to achieve some kind of consensus on the economic reforms that are needed to persuade the IMF to offer the kind of um, emergency assistance that is needed to stabilize the economy, which is also needed to win the support of all the international creditors to whom Sri Lanka owes some 50 plus billion dollars uh, and who will need to sign off on any deal. So um, you need a stable government to agree to those uh, those reforms. Of course, those reforms will not be popular with the people because they will involve some degree of austerity. They will involve higher taxes um, and, and a whole series of other reforms, the exact nature of which is not known, um, but they will certainly not be popular. So one of the big questions is which, you know, who wants to, I think, I think politicians right now are torn. Um, they, they would, of course, most of them would like to be president or would like to be in charge. But on the other hand, they know that they're going to have to implement policies that are almost certainly going to be unpopular. So they're also a bit reluctant to step into that seat. So it's a very complicated um, maneuvering happening right now in parliament. But hopefully some kind of um, uh, new government and new president emerges that has some degree of popular legitimacy that is not seen as simply continuing the legacy of the Rajapaksas by some other means, as has been the problem with Ranil Vikramasinghe. Um, and can they can agree on some deal with the IMF and then with the creditors. Uh, and then eventually uh, by the end of the year, early next year, the money might start flowing. But even in that best case scenario, they still have, most people estimate a six month window where they simply don't have the money. So they're hoping uh, one idea that Ranil Vikramasinghe as prime minister has floated is some kind of donor conference with China, India, Japan, and Western governments. Um, but that seems a bit far-fetched to me. Um, uh, I think the best case scenario is they can cobble together 
some more credit lines from India and some other uh, other folks, and that enough humanitarian aid can come in in the form of food and medicine uh, from various sources um, to just prevent a complete a complete meltdown and a complete um, humanitarian catastrophe, which is really sad to see because Sri Lanka, for all of its faults, for its you know long running civil war, for its various uprisings and terrible political violence. It's been a relatively prosperous country, and while there have been certainly poor people who have struggled to eat, on the on the macro scale, it's been a, a quite a prosperous country um, with the sort of um, a large middle class, uh, high living, you know, high high standards um, of public health and of education and of literacy, uh, and all of that is is at the risk, you know, is on the brink of being lost. I think, and I think a lot of one of the major factors that's happening is a lot of Sri Lankans are seeing their their middle class lifestyles dissolve in front of them, or their aspirations for middle class lifestyles suddenly become out of reach. And the psychological and the political effects of that, I think, are long term and are yet to be fully um, fully manifested. Yeah, and certainly there's so much demand right now out there for humanitarian aid, for aid in general. We know that because of what's happening around the world, that a lot of countries are facing a perilous futures, and a lot of people are looking for help right now, Sri Lanka amongst them. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate your insight on this. Um, fascinating. We'll see what happens next for Sri Lanka. Certainly um, sad to see a country that was, again, as you mentioned, uh, such a shining light for so long in terms of its, uh, in terms at least of its economic development, uh, fall on very hard times. Thank you again. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, we've been talking about inflation the past uh, hour or so and the Bank of Canada's attempts to tame it. It's impossible for us not to talk about groceries. For many of us, that's where we encounter changing costs first and foremost. Well, this week on our weekly journalist segment, I thought we could bring in someone who's looked into this and to whether or not big grocery chains in this country are profiting as well as passing on those rising costs that we see throughout the system. The Star just published an investigation called Supermarkets Are Hiking Prices Faster Than Necessary and Profiting from Inflation. In a nutshell, as food prices have risen, so have the profits of Canada's three largest supermarket chains. None of the three dispute that their margins have grown, but they all say attributing gains to increased markups is, quote, simply inaccurate. So is it? Well, to explain the work that was done, how they came to the conclusions that they did, joining me now is the Toronto Star's investigative reporter, Marco Chone Ovid. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. This is certainly a hot topic um, and so many different avenues you could travel to try to get some answers. But what did you set out to find exactly? What was your premise going in? Well, I mean, it's always interesting to try and like go back and, and figure out where, how did I start down this path? Cause it was a long one. And, and in this particular case, I think it really started right at the beginning of the year when we first, when that kind of the general, you know, um, conversation around increasing inflation really kicked off. And I can, like anybody else, you know, read, I read the paper and I'm, I'm, you know, listening to the television and reading about inflation all the time. And what really bothered me was that we speak about inflation as if it was some magical force, as if, you know, uh, we all read Adam Smith yesterday and the invisible hand came at night and pulled up the prices and we woke up in the morning and like magic, the prices were higher. And it really bothered me that we, you know, it was all these sort of mystical economic forces. And I was like, no, no, no. I mean, inflation is driven by people who make decisions that they're going to raise prices. And the question really is, are those people making uh, responsible decisions or are they making uh, egocentric, greedy decisions, right? Like, are they passing along 
the cost increases that they have to endure themselves as a business, or are they passing them along and more? So you set out uh, groceries, obviously, has been the hottest of hot topics when it go- groceries and gasoline, I would say the double G's, but in this case, groceries. Um, who did you look at and, uh, and what were you trying to determine? Well, I mean, that's exactly it. We, we decided to look at the supermarkets because this is a, where, a place where everybody, everybody goes and everybody has to deal with inflation on a, on a regular basis, you know, talking about, in, in, you know, interest rates and, and supply chains and snags in the Panama Canal. It's very abstract. But everybody knows that butter costs more than it did two much two weeks ago, and everybody notices when they go to buy their groceries that their items have gone up. And so we—that's why we decided we got to focus on on supermarkets because it's just really where the rubber hits the road with inflation. And um, we and we looked at the big ones, right? I mean, this, it, it, Canada has this unbelievably concentrated many of our industries, but like the uh, grocery industry. About 60% of uh, of the entire grocery market in Canada is three companies. It's uh, Loblaw, Empire, and Metro. And those sound like just three companies and people might think that they, oh, but I shop at Freshco or I shop at Longo's. But so many different brands that we know about are actually owned by one of those three companies. So you tried to determine whether or not they were in fact profiting off this what how much as you said earlier how much of this of, of cost increases are just simply being uh, be, being passed along because they have to or you know is there profit in mind here so how did you try to measure that because it, it would seem like it's it's probably difficult to do well when you look at um, the way a typical financial is done is that you know a report comes out and you go gee look the profit is higher than it was this time last year it went up 10 percent or 20 percent. And that, and we, so, you know, we, you were able to see just by Googling that, that all supermarkets had profit gains, you know, they, they were making more profit than they did last year, the year before, but the, that's not really the measure, the best measure of whether they're passing along cost increases or whether they're increasing, you know, adding profit on because profits really like, did you sell more or less? And that's going to affect your profit. There's all sorts of other things that affect your profit. So what we really tried to do is break this down in the most basic way possible. Like how much do they pay wholesale for their stuff? And then how much do they make retail when they sell it? And the difference between that in the industry is called gross profit. And so we looked at gross profit, like just the real basics. What, you know, how much of uh, every dollar that's rung through the checkout uh, are you getting to keep? And you came up with some conclusions uh, by doing that. And you found that, uh, I gather, that, that, that there was, they were taking more per transaction from, from customers. Right. I mean, this is it, right? So when we see that prices are going up and, and we, and we hear that, oh, the reason prices are going up is because, well, you know, costs are up across the board. Fertilizers is up. Gas is up. Everything's up. And so they, you know, the supermarkets just have to pass it along. Well, if that was the case, then you would expect that the profit margin would either stay the same or because they had higher wholesale costs that their, their profit margin would be squeezed right? It would be smaller. But in fact, what we were seeing is that their profit margin was getting bigger, meaning that sure, their costs were up, but their, their, their revenue was up by even more. And so the gap between the two was growing. 
And, and you determine this by a, by a specific figure. And I know that it was different for the three different chains, somewhat, uh, Metro being the least, but there, there was a, a slight increase for everyone. And of course, you're, you're talking about millions and billions, millions and millions of transactions. So it adds up. It seems like a small amount of increase, but it does add up over time. Well, that's the thing about these numbers is that, um, you know, when you're looking at percentages across companies, the percentage only has to move like 1% or even 2% or a fraction of a percent. But because the revenue of these three supermarkets is so huge, it just the multiplier effect is off the charts. So um, some of the numbers that I have in my head, I can tell you, are uh, the three companies together sell $100 billion worth of groceries every year. That's like it's that's the revenue. And so if you just move how much of uh, your your gross margin is by one percent, that's like you get one more penny out of every one of those hundred billion dollars. So it just works out to hundreds of millions in extra profits. So you really don't have to move that margin very much to make a huge difference to their bottom line. And so you did find, I mean, your conclusion was in all this, that those three uh, grocery chains were in fact uh, making more money, uh, not necessarily just passing on costs, but were increasing profits as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We th- So one of the things that I always like to think about is markup. That's something that everyone can understand. You know, I buy something for a dollar, I sell it for two. So my markup's a dollar. And um Markup is obviously different for every single product in the supermarket, right? Where the markup is going to be different, whether it's a, you know, cereal or milk or butter or eggs. But what they do, and we don't know individual product uh, markups because that's like a closely held secret. And, you know, um, as we saw actually earlier this year in the big tiff between Loblaws and Frito-Lay, that it's like a highly contested, heavily negotiated thing. And they really don't want anybody to know how much they're paying. But what they do do is they report publicly the average markup across everything, right? And that's what their gross profit margin is. And so what we were able to do is show on average, this profit margin was growing. And I guess the real question comes down to how and why. Which, of course, is uh, what we'll get to right after the break. I'm speaking with Toronto Star's investigator reporter, Marco Chonovet, about an investigation he's just done uh, into three big grocery chains, the three major grocery chains in this country, and whether or not they've been, uh, to some extent, not just passing on co- increasing inflationary costs to customers, but also in, in some ways profiting from them as well, passing on a little bit more and making a little bit more. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about what the grocery stores had to say, because certainly they responded to this, um, and also some of the other data that you found, as well as uh, what your conclusions were. That's next. My guest this half hour is the Toronto Star's investigative reporter, Marco Chone Ovid. We're talking about an investigation he's just completed into uh, grocery chains in this country. The three major ones, Costco and Walmart, weren't included because of, I'll let you explain that as well. But uh, uh, and just the, what's been happening, because obviously we're paying more for groceries. We know that. Uh, we know inflation is up. So they're paying more for what they're getting. It's you know right through the supply chain. But what else is going on behind the scenes? Uh, so you spoke to the grocery stores. Obviously, you approached them with these ID with these findings. What did they tell you? 
It's really interesting, right? Because what they, you know, grocery stores are huge employers, right? Uh, what one thing I learned in this investigation is Loblaws is actually Canada's largest private sector employer. It's huge, huge. They have the they they have presence in every so across the country in small towns and big cities. They're everywhere, and they, you know, they're very conscious of their public image, and so they really did not want to be seen to be taking advantage of inflation. And so they, 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 again, like many businesses do, said, you know, we're, it's really rough times right now. Our costs are going up and we have to pass those along. And, and what they said is that um, when you look at their increased profit margins, that that isn't really them marking up. That they're not just raising their prices more than they have to. There's all sorts of other things that are involved. And, and I said, well, you know, let's, what are they? What, if it's not you marking up your prices more than necessary, what is it? And they said, well, um, we have higher margin goods and we have lower margin goods. And some of the increase in our gross margin is because people are buying more of the high margin stuff and less of the low margin stuff. And I said, oh, really? Um, So like what? And they said cosmetics. And I was like, really? It's cosmetics? So all these extra huge, like millions, tens of millions of dollars, hundred million dollars of profits comes from lipstick? And <laughs> what did they and, say? and well, they said cosmetics is just one of the higher margin products. But you know, when I looked at it, it's see, it, 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 for example, if you look at Loblaws, they own Shoppers Drug Mart, and so Lo- Shoppers Drug Mart, you can look in their financials, and it that's where all you know the lipstick is sold. And when you look at uh, how much of you know the overall business is at Shoppers Drug Mart, it's a tiny fraction. Right, uh, I think it's about thirteen percent of Loblaws's money comes from shoppers, and so to be able to increase your company-wide profit margins by as much as they did, based solely on a part of your business that's only like thirteen percent of your business, I was like, that is a lot of lipstick. <laughs> and they, they didn't respond to that, I gather. Well, they said, you know, it's other stuff too, but we can't get into it. I said, okay. But you did contrast that with what uh, they've been telling their shareholders, of course. Well, that's the thing, right? Is that lots of companies that have to kind of play, they have to tailor their message to their audience, right? And so when these companies are trying to convince investors that they're a great investment, they need to make themselves look as profitable and growth oriented as possible. And so when I dug into a lot of their statements when they were on earnings calls or the kinds of stuff that they write in their quarterly reports to investors, they were pretty proud to boast about increasing their margins. You know, they were saying, look, we're incre- our margins are at record highs. We're making more money. And, and that's true. Like translate that into English. It means of every dollar that's run through the checkout, we take more of it than we ever have before. So in a nutshell, what should Canadians know then? And, and what can, I mean, you spoke to a lot of economists about this. I know obviously the grocery store chains have disagreed with your conclusions. Some of the economists tried to add some context to what you were talking about. Uh, what did you ultimately learn in this, in this long process and trying to figure out what exactly is going on in our, in at least some of our grocery stores? Well, I mean, I think ultimately I I learned that uh, managing inflation is very difficult, right? And one of the things that one of the economists told me that was really interesting is they say, you know, when you are running a big business that is, you know, selling $100 billion worth of goods in a year, you have so much going on, you really need to know where prices are going to be in a month or in a year because you're, you're planning out. And when inflation is moving as fast as it is now, 
you're actually, you kind of have to anticipate, right? You, you, you can't price to today's inflation. You have to price to where you think inflation is going to be in the future because, uh, and so that's what he, they, they, they suspect is going on here is that, um, you know, as we see every month, inflation is going up and up and up. And the uh, supermarkets know that they're going to have to pay more for tomatoes tomorrow than they do today. And so when they price tomatoes, they're pricing them for tomorrow's prices. I mean, obviously, grocery stores are, are corporate, you know, they're share, they have shareholders, they're not, a, they're not a public good, even though we often treat them like they might sure should be. Um, but what would you tell consumers then about, about what you found? Because I know you spoke to a lot of people in your article as well that are struggling to pay for their groceries. This is people, this is money people don't have to spend uh, on things that they used to be able to buy that they no longer can. I mean, that's absolutely right, right? The, the groceries aren't Louis Vuitton bags. They're not uh, luxury cars. They're not something that you can just choose not to buy. Everyone has to buy groceries. And and in the, it's an essential good. And, and when you look at groceries, like they are uh, the, the, the wealthier you are, the higher on the economic ladder you are, the smaller amount of your money you spend on groceries. They say, I think about if you're in the top 20% of Canadians, you spend about 4% of your money on groceries. But if you're in the bottom 20% Canadians, if you're struggling to get by, you spend a triple that on your groceries. You're spending 12% of all your money on groceries. And so what does this mean? It means that uh, folks that are at the lowest end of the economic ladder, the ones that have the least amount of money to spend are getting hit the hardest when grocery prices go up. And these are folks who are going to be forced, if they haven't already, to make really difficult decisions. I mean, at some point, the budget can't be stretched any further. It means they're going to have to spend less on food or rent, or maybe they won't be able to fill up the car this week, right? And those kinds of dif- difficult decisions, like if they aren't here already, they're definitely coming. And, and, and it's just, it's something where you see that uh, this is, as we said at the beginning, the part of inflation that's really tangible for folks. And in this case, it's t- the, more, the lower on the economic ladder you are, the more tangible it is for you. Marco Chonova, thank you so much for your time. For listeners, I recommend you go find the article on uh, thestar.com. It's a fascinating piece. Thanks so much for explaining how you got there tonight. Uh, Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate you having me on. 